Well, as we have gone through the book of Luke, there's been times where we've stopped and we've done two or three verses in one day, and that is why it has taken us over two years to get through Luke's gospel. So uh, you might be wondering, as we open our Bibles today, why are we trying to get through verses 32 through 56 in one day? It's a lot of verses. And the reason is because I want us to take in the scene of the cross today in one shot. I want us to see the whole thing in one shot. I want us to, to be there at Golgotha and, as the hymn says, to behold the man upon the cross. And I felt like us handling it in one shot in one 30 to 40 minute time span would be the best way for us to feel the weight of the crucifixion, for us to again have our affections stirred because while it is a familiar scene, we should not allow it to become one that we gloss over and that we uh, do not feel sentimental towards, that we do not feel emotional towards, uh, that we do not feel worshipful uh, about it after we, we read uh, this passage, because in it we are seeing the Savior lay down His life for His people. He has been betrayed. He has been arrested. We have seen Him stand religious in political trials. He has been beaten. He has been mocked. He has been spit on. He has been so weakened by suffering that He could not carry his cross beam to the place of execution, and Simon of Cyrene was involuntarily selected for the task. But now Simon's part is over, and it is time for Jesus to die. We're going to break up the cross this morning into four sections. We're going to look at the murder of Christ as a whole. We're going to talk about the mockery of Christ. We're going to see the mercy of Christ, and we will explore the messiahship of Christ. But let's pray right now that God would stir our affections, that our hearts would be reminded once again of who Jesus is and what he has done for us through the lens of his cross. God, we do not live on bread alone, but by every word that comes from your mouth. I pray, God, you would make us hum hungry this morning for the heavenly food of your word and that it would nourish us today in the ways of eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord, the bread of heaven. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Luke 23, starting in verse 32. Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, he saved others, let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine, and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light failed, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. 
And all the crowds that had assembled for the spectacle when they saw what had taken place returned home, beating their breasts. And all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. Now there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, a good and righteous man who had not consented to their decision in action, and he was looking for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down and wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid him in a tomb cut in stone where no one had ever yet been laid. It was the day of preparation and the Sabbath was beginning. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. On the Sabbath they rested according to the commandment. The gospel writers use very few words when describing the crucifixion of Jesus to us. We see that two criminals are going to be put to death with Jesus. We'll come back to the significance of that in terms of prophecy in a moment. But it's another reminder to us that what is happening here is scandalous. That Jesus, the innocent son of God, is going to be put to death in the company of criminals. Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. It shouldn't be this way. He should not be numbered with them, but he is. He's treated as if he is just another transgressor who fell to the Roman sword. Jesus and the criminals are led to the place that is called the skull. In Aramaic, it is called Golgotha. In Latin, Calvaria. There are two main sites that historians point to as being the place where Jesus is crucified. One of them now has a Roman Catholic church sitting on top of it, and that is the traditional site of Jesus' crucifixion. There's been another that has been more recently proposed. The reality is it might not have been at either place. The location really is not important. The event that happened at wherever the location was is what is important. And in verse 33, Luke uses just three Greek words and just four English words to describe the actual event of the crucifixion to us. There they crucified him. That's it. That's all we get. It's a bit surprising to us that the crucifixion of Christ, which the salvation of the world hinges on, is described in just four English words and three Greek words. But the horrors of crucifixion were so understood by the culture that Matthew and Mark and Luke and John are writing to that it was really unnecessary for them to explain everything that was going to take place to Jesus' body. If I tell you that somebody passed away from cancer, I don't need to explain to you the process of cells growing and spreading to other parts of the body. You understand that because cancer has become a word that is so ingrained in our culture that pretty much everybody understands what it is and what it does and how horrible it is and we all hate it because of that crucifixion was a a similar concept Um, crucified was a similar word in the first century the greek word literally means to crucify to kill a person by crucifixion or to hang a person the word speaks for itself but while matthew mark and luke and john didn't feel the need to go into great detail I do want to go into some detail this morning so that we understand what happened to our Lord because crucifixion, while we do have some knowledge of it because of Jesus' death on the cross and how famous his death on the cross is, crucifixion is not a mode of death that is still in our vocabulary as a people, right? We, we are not putting people to death by crucifixion anymore uh, here in Western culture. And so we have to look to history to understand what happened to Jesus. Jesus. 
One of the most important studies ever done on crucifixion was actually published in the Journal of the American Medical Association in 1986. It was a medically sound, in-depth study, academically respected, to find out what actually happened to the human body during crucifixion. And so I'm, I'm leaning on that 1986 study quite a bit uh, in, the in the history uh, this morning, but also in explaining physically what happened to Jesus. Crucifixion as a form of execution began in the 6th century BC. It was invented by the Persians. King Darius of Persia reportedly crucified 3,000 Babylonians. From there, it was used by people like the Greeks and the Hasmoneans. But what the Persians invented and the Greeks and the Hasmoneans used, the Romans perfected. They mastered the art of crucifixion as a publicly humiliating, slow, agonizing death that served to punish criminals and it served to warn the innocents to keep in line. That 1986 study found that everyone who was crucified was first beaten. The victim's arms were tied to a pole, and then a leather whip with bone and metal woven into it was used for lashing. Two attendants of the Roman government would take turns inflicting the blows. The bone and the metal would tear into the skin and cause deep bruises and lacerations. Pain and the blood loss would lead to circulatory shock where there would be a weak pulse and there would be rapid breathing and there would be sweating. All three of the men that we're reading about would have been scourged that day. All of them would have received this beating, Jesus and the criminals with him. But in Jesus' case, it was taken a step further because the soldiers had thrown a robe of mockery on him that would have been abrasive, certainly, to his open wounds. They placed a crown of thorns on his head. They beat him with a stick. They spit on him. At some point, they tore the robe off of him, which would have inflicted more damage. On top of that, he had not slept. And as far as we know, he had not eaten or drinking much of anything. Once they got to the place of the crucifixion, the prisoners would be offered some sedation, but Jesus refuses it in Matthew 27, verse 34, where Matthew writes, They offered him wine to drink mixed with gall, but when he tasted it, he would not drink it. After that, the victims would be thrown to the ground on their backs, and the cross beam would be placed under their shoulders. Five to seven inch long iron spikes were driven into the wrist. And that would hold the body on the cross. The victim was then lifted up and the cross beam was attached to the upright post. The feet were nailed with one spike. The knees were bent so the victim could push up in order to draw a breath. Because gravity was working against them, pulling their lungs down, making it hard for them to breathe. If the soldiers wanted a quicker death, they could break the legs. Which is why John 19 says in verse 31... Since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. They didn't break Jesus' legs. He was already dead, and that fulfilled prophecy that not one of his bones would be broken. In order for the crucified to breathe, they had to push themselves up. It would cause the wounds on their back from the scourging to rub against the wood of the cross. The nails in the wrists and the feet would send lightning bolts of pain through the body. The highest word that we have in the English language to describe pain is excruciating. 
Like, you know when you go to the hospital and they have that little scale and they say, are, on a scale of 1 to 10, how, how, how painful is it? How much pain are you in? And there's the smiley face and then there's like the purple grimace face. And so excruciating is a 10, purpose grimace face, purple grimace face, right? This is, the, this is the highest word we have to describe uh, physical agony in the human language. And it comes from a Latin word which literally means out of the cross, So the highest vocabulary we have to describe pain is a word that was born out of our understanding of Jesus' death. It's pretty much impossible for us to articulate how horrible it would be to go through all of this. But the best word we can use is a word that literally exists because of the cross. When death finally came, the soldiers would pierce the victim with a spear. If there was a flow of blood and water, they knew the victim was dead. John 19.34 says, But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. All that's there in those three Greek words, in those four English words. There they crucified him. In those four English words, we have the murder of the Son of God, killed by human hands, in one of the most evil manners of death that human beings have ever schemed up in their sinfulness and in their depravity. This is true blasphemy on display. An anonymous 8th century poet captured the scene in the poem Dream of the Rude, which is an old word for cross. And the poem is written from the perspective of the cross itself. The poet writes, It was long ago, I still remember it, that I was cut down from the edge of the forest. Ripped up by my roots, strong enemies seized me there, made me their spectacle, forced me to bear criminals. I was raised as a cross, I lifted up a mighty king, the Lord of heaven, I did not dare to bend. They pierced me with dark nails, I bear the scars, the open wounds of hatred. They mocked us both together, I was drenched with blood that flowed from that man's side after he had sent forth his spirit. This is the murder of Christ, but in the midst of his murder, we see the mockery of Christ as the people around Jesus hurl insults at him as he hangs. As Jesus is praying for the forgiveness of the people, they are arrogantly making fun of him, specifically making fun of his seeming lack of power. We learn from verse 35, the people stood by watching. These are the common people. These are the people who were roped up and manipulated into being part of this terrible scene. There was probably a lot of emotions in that crowd as they watched what played out before their eyes. But in the religious leadership of of, uh, Israel, there was just hatred and there was derision. Verse 35 says the rulers scoff at him and they make fun of the idea that he could supposedly be the Messiah that's going to save Israel and save others, and yet he is not able to save himself. If he's the Messiah, let him save himself. This is their blasphemous pun that they think is so clever. The soldiers join in with the mockery in verse 36. They offer him sour wine, making fun of the idea that he is a king. This is not an act of mercy. They're not offering him sedation. This instead is an act of mockery. Servants of a king would commonly bring good wine into the king's court. And they would bend the knee and they would serve the cup of wine to the king. They're offering up this sour wine as an act of ridicule. Here's your wine, O king. That's the tone of this. They also say that if he is a king, then he should save himself. 
In verse 38, we see there's a placard above Jesus' head with an inscription on it. It says, this is the King of the Jews. Now, that's not all it said. If you combine all of the Gospel accounts, we get the full reading. It says, this is Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. This is Pilate's work. In John 19, verse 19, John writes, Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So everybody could read it, if you could read. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the King of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am the King of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. The leaders didn't want any confusion. They didn't want anybody walking by and thinking that this Jesus is actually the king of the Jews. But Pilate wrote, this is the king of the Jews, I think to turn the screw on them a little bit. I I, I think to, to get a little bit of revenge on these men who had forced his hand and had made him go through with his execution, he really didn't want to go through this. But what he's done unknowingly is in this mockery of Jesus, he has actually confirmed the truth about him. What's written on the sign is true. Jesus is the King of the Jews. But it is also a statement of his crime in the eyes of the Romans. That he would claim to be a king that only Caesar uh, could lay claim to. It's a mockery of justice. It's a mockery of the character of Christ to put any charge on him. Because he's utterly sinless. He is pure. He is the essence of innocence. And he is the essence of perfection. And so even though what's written on this sign, even though it's true, it's still mockery. And then the final bit of mockery comes from one of the criminals who's hanging with them. And that criminal says, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. In the end, all this mockery that Jesus gets from the leaders, from the soldiers, from this criminal... It comes down to one thing. If you're the Messiah, if you're the King of the Jews, then you ought to be able to save yourself. All the mockery boils down to that. If you're the Messiah, you should be able to save yourself. The great irony is that him being the Messiah is the reason he's not saving himself. If you're the Messiah, you ought to be able to get off that cross. No, if he is the Messiah, that is the reason he stays on the cross. Because it was his mission to die there. His mission as the Messiah is not to save himself, it's to save his people. The Jewish people didn't understand this. They expected the Messiah to be crowned in coronation, not to be crucified. They thought he would come and overthrow Rome and take David's throne in Jerusalem. Not that he would be crucified by Caesar outside of the city. They did not understand that the Messiah had to die. Here's R.C. Sproul on this. He says, Who is this being crucified? He is the God-man. He is God incarnate. Not the impotent God incarnate, but the omnipotent, almighty God incarnate. According to His human nature, while He was hanging on the cross, Jesus was physically helpless and unable to save Himself. That human nature was still perfectly united with the divine nature. According to his divine nature, Jesus only had to say a single word to stop this travesty. As Scripture says, he utters his voice, the earth melts. He could have saved himself in a heartbeat. The reason he didn't save himself was not because he could not, but because he would not. That makes all the difference in the world. 
And the reason he would not is the covenant of redemption. To bring about the new covenant, Jesus had to die. He could have saved himself, but he wouldn't do it. For the sake of the church, he wouldn't do it. Because of your sin and my sin. If we're to be paid for by anybody other than us, and for that payment to be accepted by God, it had to be Jesus. Therefore, the Messiah had to fulfill his mission. It's reminiscent of the 17th century poet Jacobus Rivius, who said, No, it was not the Jews who crucified, nor who betrayed you in the judgment place, nor who, Lord Jesus, spat into your face, nor who with buffets struck you as you died. No, it was not the soldiers fisted bold who lifted up the hammer and the nail or raised the cursed cross on Calvary's hill or gambling tossed the dice to win your robe. I am the one, O Lord, who brought you there. I am the heavy cross you had to bear. I am the rope that bound you to the tree, the whip, the nail, the hammer, and the spear, the blood-stained crown of thorns you had to wear. It was my sin, alas, it was for me. We've seen the murder of Christ and we've seen the mockery of Christ. We turn our attention now to the heart of the man on the cross. We see the mercy of Christ. Theologically, we can define mercy as God compassionately not giving us the divine wrath and the divine punishment that we absolutely deserve. And if that's what mercy is, then this entire scene that we have read from verse uh, 32 all the way to verse 56 here, this entire scene is a picture of mercy. It is the ultimate display of God's mercy because you have Jesus receiving your sin punishment so you would not receive your sin punishment. Jesus is your merciful substitute so that it would not be you dying on the cross. So that's the big picture of mercy, but as we look at that big picture, we can comb through the scene and we can find a couple of smaller, beautiful pictures of Jesus' mercy in the midst of the big picture. And the first comes in His prayer on the cross. Luke 23, verse 34. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. We don't see Jesus on the cross answering the sneers of the crowd and the mockery of the crowd with this, just you wait. Just you wait because I'm going to resurrect and then I'm going to ascend into heaven and then I'm going to return one day and I'm going to scorch every inch of this earth and you all will stand in judgment. So just you wait. He doesn't say just you wait even to to, to Sunday morning because I'm going to resurrect and I'm going to come back and look every one of you in the face and say I told you so. He doesn't doesn't say any of that. Instead, he's praying. He is praying to the Father and he is asking God to be merciful to the nation of Israel and to forgive them for what they're doing. Some people have suggested Jesus is sovereignly praying for the elect in the crowd, that in his sovereign knowledge he is praying for those who will come to know him one day for their sins to be forgiven. I think it's much more general than that. I really do. I think he is simply praying for God's mercy on sinful Israel who is crucifying their Messiah. And it's astounding mercy. Many of us are tempted to seek vengeance over the smallest of sins. Somebody says something about us, and we're ready to take a switchblade out. We're like, what'd they say? 
I'll get them, you know what I mean? Ready to vent our anger over the smallest of things. And yet here is the innocent Son of God suffering for the iniquity of the world and He is not venting His anger. He's asking for mercy for the people who were doing this to Him. And the basis for this mercy is that these people do not understand the depths of the sin that they are committing. How could they? There is no way for them to comprehend the full weight of what is happening here. That they are attempting to murder God. Paul says as much in 1 Corinthians 2. He says, but we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God. He's talking about the gospel, which God decreed before the ages of our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this. For if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Jesus warned his people in Matthew, or no, Luke 21, he warned his followers of the judgment that was going to come down on Jerusalem in 70 AD for what they had done to the Messiah. And indeed it did. In 70 AD, God judged Israel. He uses the Romans as a tool of judgment against his people for crucifying the Lord of glory. They besiege the city of Jerusalem. Uh, over a million Jewish people die if the historian Josephus is right. And as horrible as what happened in 70 A.D. was, how much sooner would the Father have planned to judge had Jesus not prayed? How much worse would the wrath have been had Jesus not prayed? We don't know, but to even hear this prayer from the Son of God for Israel as He's being killed by them shines a light on the great mercy that lies at the heart of our Savior Jesus. The second picture of mercy we see is found in the grace he shows to one of the thieves that's been crucified with him. One of the thieves mocks him. We already saw that. But then, I love this, that you have the one thief, as he's dying, he hears the mockery and he rebukes the other thief. Do you not fear God since you're under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward for, uh, of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. This thief is convicted by the Holy Spirit of his own sin and he realizes that while it is just for him to die and for this other criminal to die on crosses, it is not just that Jesus would die on a cross. And he makes this declaration about the sinlessness of Christ and the sinfulness of his own heart right there on the cross and he asks Jesus to remember him in his kingdom and Jesus responds by saying, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Jesus promises this man that his sin is going to be forgiven and that he will enter into glory as he is literally dying for the man's sin. This is mercy in action like we will never see again in this world. While this man is feeling the earthly consequences for his sin by dying on that cross, God is diverting all of the spiritual consequences for his sin onto Christ who is dying next to him. That's mercy. That is God's love, right? That is the gospel. This is the good news of the kingdom which offers multitude of second chances to sinners like you and me on display. It led the hymn writer William Cowper to write, The dying thief rejoiced to see that fountain in his day, and there may I, though vile as he, wash all my sins away. We've seen his murder, we've seen the mockery, we've seen the mercy on display. And if the mercy showed us the heart of Christ, now we close by seeing the Messiahship of Christ. 
We look at the identity of Jesus. We've seen the heart of Jesus, now we look at the identity of Jesus. Because this passage about the crucifixion is soaked with the fulfillment of ancient prophecy uttered by God's Old Testament prophets and preachers, and they are proofs to us that Jesus is the Anointed One sent by the Father to save His people, that He is the Messiah. First of all, we have Jesus being crucified with two criminals, We see this in verses 32 and 33, which fulfills the prophecy of Isaiah 53, 12. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Then you'll notice the last line of Isaiah 53, 12, that he was not only numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. So he's not just numbered with them, he makes intercession for them, which is also prophecy fulfilled in verse 34 when Jesus prays for the people to be forgiven and he makes intercession uh, intercession for the sinners who are crucifying him. In verse 34, lots are cast for his garments. The casting of lots was like the first century rolling of dice. It was a a gambling game for Jesus' clothes. David predicted this in Psalm 22, a messianic prophecy that is all about the crucifixion. Verse 18, they divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. You move down to verses 44 through 47, and we see prophecy fulfilled in the supernatural events that surround the death of Christ. First of all, when Jesus dies, darkness envelops the land. The whole landscape, is, is, it, it goes dark when Jesus is crucified. Darkness is a sign of God's judgment. Amos 8, verse 9, And on that day, declares the Lord God, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. Similarly, in the judgments that came down upon Egypt, we see darkness covering Egypt as one of the plagues. The darkness at Golgotha proves judgment has come. But I don't think that it's showing that judgment is going to come on the people for what they've done to Jesus. I think that it's showing judgment has come on the Son of God. Because all the wrath that God's people deserve for their sinning is placed on His shoulders. God is righteous and His righteousness makes Him hate sin. His wrath is the punishment He pours out on the sin that He hates. And it's His love that led Him to send His Son to die for our sin and to receive the wrath instead of us. And since Jesus is completely divine in His nature, not just completely human, but also totally God, He is able to absorb an eternity's worth of hell on the cross in six hours for every sinner who would ever repent and trust in Him. The darkness is proof that the judgment has fallen on the Son of God, that He has taken the punishment for us. It's proof that Isaiah 53.10 has come to pass, which says, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush Him. He has put Him to grief. In verse 45, there's another supernatural event that occurs. The curtain that separates the Holy of Holies from the rest of the temple is torn in two. It's torn from the top to the bottom. Now this curtain was not like your bedroom curtain, which you might be able to grab and just tear in two with your your hands. It wasn't like that. It was long and it was thick and it would actually take an act of God to rip this thing in half. That's exactly what happens. 
It's ripped open by heaven. It, it, it is ripped apart by God from top to bottom. And it was God's way of letting the world know, of letting Israel know, the new covenant has come. The old covenant, the priesthood, the sacrificial system, it's all over now. The way has been opened for anybody who repents of sin and puts their trust in God's Son to be forgiven and to have full access to the Lord, to boldly approach His throne. And this tearing of the curtain proves the Messiahship of Christ because if Jesus had not truly been the Messiah, then the Father would not have responded to His death by tearing down the barrier between God and man. But because the task was finished by the Messiah, the curtain was torn. Matthew's Gospel records another supernatural event that came along with the darkness and the temple curtain being torn. It's an earthquake. And the earthquake results in tombs being opened and Old Testament saints resurrecting. Matthew says, And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split, and the tombs also were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised, and coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. We know it's truly the Messiah, who has died because his death shakes the very earth and opens graves. Jesus is the first one to show himself to people, right? He is the first fruits of resurrection. But these people that were resurrected as a result of the crucifixion, they are the first fruits of the first fruits. They are an immediate witness to the power of Jesus' death and the impact that it has on sin and the grave. And then in verse 46, Jesus commits His Spirit into the Father's hands. The work of salvation is done. Jesus' fellowship with the Father is restored. And it's yet another proof that Jesus is the Messiah and that He had been faithful in completing His work because if He had not, then the Father would not have accepted His Spirit. And then in verse 47, one of the Roman centurions watching the scene praises God. He declares the innocence of Christ. It's the fourth time in Luke 23 that Jesus is declared innocent. And this Gentile pagan's praise of God, his theologically accurate declaration about the Son of God, is another miraculous moment proving to us that this is not the death of a mere man. This is the Lord of the universe in human skin dying on a Roman instrument of torture. And to some in the crowd, that was incredibly clear. And to this Roman man who had probably overseen a host of crucifixions in his life, this one stood out. This man was different. Something divine has happened here. And he declares it. The rest of the narrative looks like this. The people go home beating their breasts over the horror of what they've seen. They've participated in it. They were a part of it. And yet they can't deny the grief of it and the guilt that they're feeling and maybe the fear that's gripping them considering all the supernatural events that are happening around the crucifixion. So they go home beating their breasts. His friends and the women who followed him stand at a distance watching as his life ends. And at some point they moved away. Because we learn in John 19, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. 
When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour the disciple took her to his own home. By the way, I've always thought that this is one of the um, parts in Scripture that we can just like hold out and say the, the Apostle John was an amazing man. Like for Jesus to look at him and say, you're the one that I need to take care of my mom. You take care of, of Mary. You take care of my mother. What does that tell us about John as a man of God, as a follower of Christ? I think he was an amazing man. But that John 19 text shows us that at some point, these people that were so close to Jesus, they got away from the cross. They distanced themselves. Maybe so they wouldn't get roped into any sort of trouble themselves. Maybe it was for safety. Maybe the horror of it was too much and they just needed to get some distance from the scene of the crime. Joseph and Nicodemus care for the body of Jesus in verses 50 through 53. Joseph of Arimathea was part of the Sanhedrin. He's part of the ruling council that oversaw the uh, the, the unfair kangaroo court trial of Christ back uh, at the beginning of this whole scene. But he is a good and righteous man, and he does not approve of the actions that the court took against Christ. Instead, he's a man who is looking for the kingdom of God, meaning he's a believer. Matthew 27, verse 57 says, When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who was also a disciple of Jesus. Joseph's wealth is an important detail because it shows that we have another prophecy fulfilled. More proof that Jesus is the Messiah. Isaiah 53 verse 9, And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. He was buried in a rich man's tomb. The other man there to help is Nicodemus. It's the same Pharisee who came to Jesus by night in John 3 to find out how somebody goes about being born again. John 19, verse 39 says, Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. That is some serious, serious money that is being spent by Nicodemus in order to care for the body of Jesus. That is a lot of myrrh, that's a lot of aloe, and that was not cheap. They wrapped Jesus' body in a linen shroud. They lay him in a virgin tomb that had never held another body. Matthew 27 tells us this was actually going to be Joseph's grave, but he's giving it to Jesus. Importantly, Matthew adds this detail in verse 60 of Matthew 27. It says, And laid it in his own new tomb, which he had cut in the rock, and he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. There's a great rock in front of the tomb. One person is not going to be able to roll that rock out of the way. Nobody's stealing this body without a planned, concerted effort. And that is why Matthew wants to make that note, to let everybody know there's a rock in front of the tomb. Jesus has been sealed away. And then finally, the devotion of the women around Jesus is sweet. They make note of where his body is. There was an early criticism that, uh, that when the women showed up to the tomb on Easter morning, that they just forgot which tomb it was and then they were mistaken about Jesus being resurrected they didn't forget they made note of it here um, then they go home to prepare spices and perfumes that will be used to anoint Jesus's body on Sunday morning after they have rested on the Sabbath the devotion of these women all the way to the end of Jesus's life puts an exclamation point on his relationship with females throughout the gospel because it was a culture that did not value women 
It was a culture that pushed them uh, not even to the periphery, right? It, it was further than that. It was, it, it was removing them really from having any sort of prominence or influence on, in society at any level except for some rare exceptions. And here you have Jesus. He took this culture that did not value women and he walks into it and raises their worth to the place that it should be. They are daughters made in the image of God. He doesn't exchange harsh words with them in the Gospels, truly has no negative interactions with women in the Gospels, and they are with him all the way to the end of his life. What can we say in closing closing here? How can we sum up this moment in history that changed the eternal destiny of every man and every woman who's ever placed their faith in Jesus. Paul said that for the Jewish people, the cross was a stumbling block. Because the law says that anybody who hangs on a tree is cursed. And they could not imagine any situation in which the Messiah, the Messiah, would be cursed. That he would be hung on a tree. For the Gentiles, the cross was a joke. This is your God? Dead on a Roman cross, hung there like a common criminal. This is the one in whom we live and move and have our being. They laughed at it. But for us, the cross is not a point of offense and it is not a punchline. Because we are his sheep, we look at these verses and we see the death of our shepherd. We see him laying down his life for the flock. And when we look into his murder, we see love. And when we look into his mockery, we see glory. And when we look into his relief, we see mercy. And when we look into his messiahship, we see our salvation. The cross is something that causes us as believers to weep. It causes us as believers to rejoice. Weeping because we know it should have been us. Rejoicing because we know it should have been us. And laying all our devotion on the altar because it was Him. For whatever the cross meant before our Lord died on it, it is, as Charles Spurgeon said, now the world's one and only remedy. And for the church, it is our great hope. And let it be the theme of our lives and our ministry. Let us cling to it and let us proclaim it until the one who died on it returns in glory. Let's pray now. Father, I thank you for the grace that you have shown us in the cross. I thank you, God, that the world may see the murder of, in their eyes, a failed political rebel, but we know better, God. We see the love of the Messiah who came to die for his people. Father, we look into this passage and we see that your son does not just care for us from a distance, that he is Emmanuel, that he is God with us, that he has come near, that he has dwelt with us, and more than that, he has died for us. He has been a servant for us to the point of death, even death on a cross. There is no response that we could give God that's remotely right to the Messiah laying down his life than, uh, except for us to lay down our lives. And Lord, I, I pray that maybe this morning... Um, our, our Christianity had started to, if it had started to take a back seat, if it had become something that we just kind of do when we're coming to church, and, and there's really not a lot of difference between us and our lost friends and, and neighbors uh, during the, the week, God. I pray that, 
we'd read a passage like this and say, no, it can't be that. That if he's given me his all, I have to give him my all. And I pray that we would be awakened, God, once again to having uh, just devotion, Lord. Devotion to your son. Yielding, Lord, not to anyone but him uh, when it comes to uh, our loyalty and when it comes to uh, our obedience. Father, I'm also praying this morning that uh, for anyone that doesn't know you, God, the cross has been a story. It's been a moment in history. But it hasn't been something that's changed their lives. I pray they would see the murder of your son this morning. They would see the mockery of your son this morning. And that they would see that in the midst of the murder and in the midst of the mockery, he is a merciful Messiah. And I pray that that their hearts, which right now love sin, would be melted and that they would be drawn away from sin and that they would want to love you and be in relationship with you. So draw people out of sin, God, by the aroma of love that, that we smell at the cross this morning. Draw them out of sin, Lord. Draw them out of death and draw them into eternal life. That they would repent and put their trust in the one who has died at Calvary and that they would trust in no other. So work, God, your word in the hearts of those who have listened this morning. If we have ears to hear, let us hear. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.